Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and go to uh, Acts chapter 8, please. I hope that um, when, let me say it this way, I hope that we never take it for granted what I just said when I said, take your copy of God's Word. I mean, think of how many believers through the ages have not had access to their own copy of the Scriptures, and we have multiple available to us, a print version, electronic version, uh, many different translations, and uh, I just hope we never grow weary of or grow too complacent. Maybe that's the better word. But you have accessible to you a copy of God's Word in your own language. You, as many of you know, I'm an amateur student of church history, and um, many people have given so much to be able to have a copy of Scripture in their own language, and even a complete copy just moved to, to remind us of that. You know, in Acts chapter 8, we started this text uh, last week. Um, well, we went through verse 1 through 3 of 8, and so we're going to pick up down, you can see that the sermon starts in verse 9, and some of you are saying, hey, what happened to verses 4 through 8? I'm going to read them, uh, but we're not going to really make too many comments about them. We're going to come back next week and pick that up when we look at uh, verses 26 through 50, I think it is, or 40, verses 26 through 40. We're going we're gonna to go back and pick up the first couple verses in chapter 8 because they both deal with Philip's ministry, and we're going to put those together next week. But, uh, but I want to make some comments today and uh, as I read along, and, and so let me just encourage you to, to pay attention, and, and I'll probably stop as I typically do what we're doing in this Acts series. We're reading longer sections of Scripture. This one isn't too bad today, but um, I just want to make comment along the way, and so um, uh, be ready for that as I, as I read. So here we go in Acts chapter 8. Uh, it says this, it says in verse uh, 4, because remember what happened is uh, F- uh, Stephen has just died. He's the first martyr that is recorded in Acts for us. And, and he stood for the resurrection. He stood for Jesus Christ, and they stoned him for it. And we were introduced to a man by the name of Saul. Uh, and then uh, uh, we see that he, he uh, goes out and he's, he delights in Stephen's execution, and he's persecuting the church. He's scattering them all over. People are, uh, he's going in trying to to haul him off to prison, kill him, things like that. And so the believers are going all over the place. They're leaving Jerusalem. Remember, this is where uh, they started was in Jerusalem. Um, Saul's going to be a a key player in this book. Many of you already know that. Uh, But this is where we're, we're introduced to him. But anyway, so when it says in verse 4, those who scattered, that's what it's talking about, that they, they left in the persecution. So verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. By way of reminder, Philip was one of the seven who was chosen in chapter 6 to help with the widow distribution of food. Remember, that was uh, the, the food distributed to the, distributed to the widows. There was a problem with that, and Philip was one of the ones that was selected to do that. And now we're, he's brought back into scene, and he's preaching. He's proclaiming to them that Christ, and, and he's going to Samaria. That's going to play a key role here in a second. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out from many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many were paralyzed. Many who were paralyzed or lame, they were healed. So there was much joy in that city. 
in the city of Samaria here, one of the cities. Verse 9, and this will be our main text today. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, I got to stop here and clarify that. What happened here is that uh, this would have been a, a, a surprising thing that the gospel had gone to Samaria. Because you have to understand the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans was extraordinary. And there were several reasons for that. They considered the Samaritans half-breeds because they were half-Jew, half-Gentile. And so there was some national uh, prejudice there. But also there were some political things as well. Because years earlier in the Maccabean Revolution, uh, there was the Samaritans had opposed the Jews in that. And they did not forget this. And so there is uh, this complete tension. As you remember, when Jesus was uh, on earth in his earthly ministry, we read about this in John 4, you remember that he was going through a journey. He went through Samaria, and he surprised the disciples, saying that he had to go through Samaria because they were like, we, we want to avoid Samaria. This is what good Jews did. Good Jews went around and avoided these cities of Samaria because it was, they didn't want to even associate with these people. But Jesus said he needed to go through there. And of course, some of you remember the story in John 4, there's a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, and Jesus talks with her. And I don't know if you remember, there's a detail in the story, but she immediately says to Jesus, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You know, and so it would have been shocking here that the gospel would have gone to Samaria. And so there was, there was a buzz that was happening. There were some great things that were happening. There was, there was the people who were suddenly willing to die for this person of Jesus Christ. And, and, then, and then now that's, that's going outside of Jerusalem. Now it's going into Samaria. And so the apostles, they say, hey, we're hearing about this. and We need to send some people to go check this out. Now, there's a reason why this Holy Spirit didn't come immediately when the Samaritans believed, and that was because this was a confirming sign. Uh, we saw this earlier in chapter 2, but remember in Acts 1 in verse 8 says that you, Jesus told the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, remember? This is what is happening when Jesus said it would happen in chapter 1 verse 8. And so the reason why the Holy Spirit doesn't immediately come upon these believers in Samaria was because they needed the apostles to come and authenticate it, not because they needed the apostles' work to do it, but because there needed to be a stamp of approval from the Jerusalem church that there was one church of Jesus Christ. There was one people who were following Jesus Christ. It wasn't the Samaritans doing their own deal and the Jews doing their own deal. And so this is the reason why it's a little bit unusual that this would happen. 
I'll get back to reading here in a second. I just got to give you all these tidbits that just don't fit into the sermon, right? Okay. And so the other thing is that it's really crucial in my mind. It's really interesting in my mind that Peter and John are the ones that go to Samaria to check this out. I don't know if you remember this or not, but earlier, John, when he was in his walk, in his ministry with Jesus and walking with Jesus, do you remember John, he had a suggestion for Jesus. I don't know if you remember what it is, but he said this. He was so upset at the cities of Samaria that he said this. He says, should we call down fire from heaven so they are consumed? And Jesus is like, no, 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 calm down, all right, okay? But, but, but I think it's just a, it's, it's a great sense of humor that Jesus is like, hey, John, hey, John, I got a job for you. I want you to go to Samaria, okay? I want, you, I want you to see what's happening here, okay? Now, we don't have this today. We don't have apostolic people that come and kind of approve the, the works of what God's doing, but we do have things to help us keep us on the, on the path of orth- orthodoxy. We have creeds and, and, and confessional statements and doctrinal statements. We have other churches that help us make sure that we're interpreting the scriptures correctly. And so while, as I said earlier, we're an independent church, we do look to historic documents. In fact, I'm going to quote one today in the sermon. I'm going to quote the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written in 1646. And, you know, that was something that over 100 guys spent five years hammering out this, this statement, right? And so uh, this, is, this is what we look to to try to help us make sure we're not going off into theological error. But at the end of the day, we have the scriptures to guide us, and, these, and the, they didn't have that. So that's a little bit of the background of what's happening here. Let's pick it up again here. And so the, the, the apostles, I'll go in verse 14 again, they, they, uh, uh, they were at Jerusalem. They heard Samaria had received the word of God, so they sent them Peter and John. This must have been just tremendous news. And so they came down, they prayed for them, they might receive the Holy Spirit. He had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, what that means is that they had water baptism, but they didn't have the spirit baptism. Verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone in whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that in you, you are in the gall of bitterness and a bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come unto me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into our text, our sermon this morning. Father, we've taken a longer introduction today to kind of give some background, and I pray that that's helpful as we seek to understand this text, the scripture. God, we, when we open the word, we are amazed and awed and grateful that we have this complete access to it, and I pray that... Um, it would, it would access our hearts today. I pray that it would change us and that we wouldn't just look at the words and, and just move on. I pray that you would remove distractions. And I know that um, there's things that compete for our attention and, and, and all that, and we can't minimize every distraction. But Father, I pray that you would help us to focus in on this and that it would be, it'd be honoring to you, God. And I pray that it'd be powerful in your sight. And I pray that I communicate in a way that's pleasing to you and that's accurate to the text and helpful to those who are listening. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So we, we can learn, you see the, the title of Simon's mistake here, 
you know, we can learn from other people's successes, but also their failures. Uh, some of the people that I look up to the most, I, I try to learn from their successes, what they do correctly, but I also try to pay attention to when they make a mistake and, and try to learn from that as well. Um, because we all make mistakes, and, and uh, we can learn from each other's mistakes. And, you know, some are, are simple and have a little consequence, like when I make a mistake in, in a game of chess with my dad or with Michael when we're playing chess, and I make a mistake and I lose a bishop or I lose a queen or I lose the game or something like that. I've, you know, in the moment, it feels terrible, but, you know, it's of little consequence. It's a game, and you just move on. It doesn't really affect my life. Other mistakes that are made are a little bit more costly, and I, I read this story that in 2006, um, Alitalia Airlines, they listed a deal on flights uh, from Toronto to Cyprus, and it was supposed to be $3,900, but when they posted it online, they posted it for $39. And so by the time they figured it out, 2,000 passengers had already booked flights. Um, so fear in the fallout of canceling all those tickets, they ran with it and everything, but it eventually cost more than $7 million in losses. You know, someone who just put that in the, in the program or in the website or whatever like that and, and just, you know, put the wrong decimal point in or something and $7 million. It's a little bit more costly. But then there's some mistakes that are so grave that they have eternal consequences and that's what I see in this text here today. So the question is, is was Simon a believer? And, you know, I'm, I've been on the fence about this. And, in fact, I was, I'm, I'm, in my heart, I cheer for Simon. I want him to be a believer, right? You know, I, I, I want him to, to, uh, uh, to, to be someone who truly understood the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And I hope that when we get to heaven, I hope he's there. But everything I look at and everything I've studied and really 2,000 years of church history who have commented on this, we all agree that probably not. Because of the way that this is, the way Peter responds to him, the way he responds to Peter, the way he, he, he uh, uh, shows himself and things like this, it, it appears that this man was not a true convert of Jesus Christ. And so this text probably speaks to the greatest concern that I have as a pastor. I'm not being melodramatic by saying that. This is not hyperbolic. One of the greatest concerns I have as a pastor that is on my mind every Sunday is that I know I'm speaking to some people that think they're Christians and they probably are not. Now, I don't know people's hearts, and so I want to be clear from that right now. I don't have a list in my head, so when I'm looking out, I'm not like saying, yeah, no, they're not making it. Yep, okay, no, that, that's not what's happening, okay? But I know the reality of this. I know what Jesus has said. I know that this text here re- just shows that there are people who think that they're true Christians, and they're not. And this is something that has only intensified over the last 20 years of ministry, of that this is a true reality, not just our church, but many churches. And so as we come to this text of Scripture, this is not a sermon I've really been looking forward to preaching, if I'm going to be honest with you, because there's so many areas where it's going to be very easy to be misunderstood in this. And so I'm going to walk very carefully through this. And if there's a point, if there's a point that doesn't make sense to you, I hope that you will speak to me about that, because I want to make sure we're clear on this. But this is something that is of grave concern, Because here we have Simon making a tragic mistake. And so if I was going to summarize it, it would be this. And I don't think I put this for you, the handout there, but you can write it down if you want anyway. But don't mistake a decision, action, or emotion for saving faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, am I I, uh, uh, 
saying decisions and actions and emotions are irrelevant or bad. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, I think that they are actually part of a conversion process, but those by themselves are not saving faith. And I see, we see this, and we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at verse 13, when it says, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and have seen signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And so we see this, that there was something that happened in Simon's life. There, there was something that happened, but I think it'd be more about, remember the parable of the soils. And come back to that in your mind. Just, just make a little mental note of that where Jesus says that there's, there's different types of soils. And he talks about this in the Gospels. And he talks about how that, that it, uh, and Luke records it for us as well, is that, that there's, there's seed that gets planted and some is in hard ground and some is in fertile ground, some is in thorny ground. And he, and he talks about how that there's one seed that bears fruit for a little while, but then it just gets squashed and rooted out and taken away and snatched away. This is, I think, Simon is an example of that type of soil. And I just want us to be very cautious about this. It could be us. And so I'm going to give some things for us to think about and some ways that we can actually truly have assurance. So Luke carefully records at least five mistakes that Simon made um, that's listed here in our text. And so I implore you and myself to not make the same mistakes. Number one, please don't make the mistake. Please don't mistake belief for saving faith. Now, I've got to explain this, right? Okay? Because that just sounds like heresy when you see it, right? I mean, in fact, I tried to, to tweak the words a little bit and things like that so it wouldn't sound so terrible. But at the end of the day, this is what the text says, and this is what it says Simon did. It said he believed. I believe that when we look at the totality of Scripture, my point will be true. And that's the important, and that's what's called systematic theology, okay? Systematic theology is a discipline of understanding the Scripture where we look at what the entirety of the Scripture says about something rather than just one text, okay? And so when we're trying to interpret a text of Scripture, we want to see what the entirety of Scripture says. So later on in the sermon, I'm going to show you some other areas of Scripture. But for right now, we're going to stay here in Acts chapter 8, and we see that it says that Simon believed in verse 13. Now, why do I say that this was a mistake of his. Well, it wasn't a mistake that he believed, obviously, but when we look at how he responded, it seems to indicate that he didn't truly understand. It seemed like he, there were some things that he intellectually accepted, and it was probably more on the fact that there were signs and wonders being done by the apostles. Remember who Simon was. Simon was a magician. Simon was one who was amazing people. He was one who, in the town that he had lived in, people were, were constantly coming to him and saying, what do you have for us today? He would have been like, the, uh, to, to go back, uh, the David Copperfield of, of magicians and more of a, a, a modern-day, maybe a Penn and Teller or uh, David Blaine or some of these famous magicians, people would pay big money to go see because he was always doing these signs and wonders, these tricks, if you will. And so when the apostles roll into town and they start doing things like healing people, a paralyzed, we read that in um, Oh, verse, uh, was it seven? Uh, that the, and he sees all the joy that was bringing into the city. Simon thought to himself, I want some of that. That's what I need. Now, how do I know that? Because later on, he tries to give the apostles money. He says, give me that power. Here's, here's some money. Here's some silver to, that I can have this as well. And so all this, when we take it together, as much as I cheer for Simon and as I want to see him in eternity, and I hope that he is there, I think at this moment at least... And from what Peter says to him, he had mistaken just intellectually believing some things about God to be true for saving faith. And it is possible. 
It is possible for us to believe things about God and to say that, yes, He is God, or He is in control, or yes, God is true, but not have true saving faith. We're going to see what the key is here in a minute here, but we can't afford to make this mistake. You see, the reason why I think that this is true, and this is where systematic theology comes in a little bit, is, you know, does Satan believe in God? Of course he does. James will go on and say, well, you believe in God, you do well, James says. He says, even the demons believe, and they even tremble. And so if we say that I believe in God, what we've done is we've said, okay, good, we're on the same level as a demon, okay? All right? There has to be something more and something that Simon mistook. Simon thought he was okay, and Simon thought he had it because simply he had some, some, some facts about God nailed down, and so he believed that this was true, but it, it, it didn't change him. And that's hinting on what we're going to get at at the end of the message. This is one of the reasons why we're very cautious in our children's ministry, if I would tell you this. And, you know, of our, our Awana program, which is a, a Wednesday night program that we have for kids normally. We haven't done it lately, you know, obviously. Uh, but when we start that back up again, this is one of the things as leaders, we're always very cautious and we need to be very cautious about with our children is that we don't just teach them facts about the scriptures and then assume that they have saving faith. Again, I'm not saying that we need to make this difficult. I mean, the Bible, the gospel message is so simple a child could understand it. I am not saying that there should be any type of like trying to keep children away from Jesus. No, that would go totally against the reason why we do children's ministry. But as workers, this is the reason why we need to be very cautious about making sure that we're answering the kids' questions and that when they're memorizing Bible verses, that we're trying to get them to understand, that, to, to see that they understand what they're memorizing. And as parents, of course, when we're raising our children, we need to make sure that they're not just re- repeating lines back to us about facts about the Bible, but that we're trying to ask questions to probe to see if they truly do understand and they truly do believe and that the gospel message is changing them. So let's not make this mistake. Please don't make this mistake. And I re- realize that there are some of you who you have children that have made professions of faith and, 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 and now you wonder, and, and, and this is probably a harder sermon for you to hear, and, and, and that, that's not lost on me. And, and, and I pray, I pray for people that I know, people that I love, that I care for, that they have children that, that they're not following Christ, but yet they have lots of head knowledge about God. And so our point isn't to try to point people out and try to say, well, no, I don't think you're a Christian. It's not our goal, to, our job to do that, but it is our job to make sure that we understand the gospel and that we're trying to explain it in a way that is helpful and full and complete. I need to move on. Not only do we, should we not make the mistake of, we should mistake belief for saving faith, but we should mistake baptism for saving faith. You say, man, wait a minute here. This is a Baptist church. Wait a minute here. You're pushing up against baptism here? Um, you, you guys are the weird ones that like use tons of water and like, you know, like you about drowned everyone every time you do this, right? Okay. And so, yes, that's true. Yes, we, you know, guilty as charged. Okay. And so baptism, big deal. I mean, we, we're Baptists and, and, and you know, I, I, I think baptism is a huge important step in, in our Christian walk and it's, it's commanded. Um, even the Great Commission, we're told to do this. We're told to go and make disciples and one of the ways that we show we make disciples is by baptizing them, right? And so, of course, this is not a commentary on why we shouldn't baptize, of course. But we can't look to a baptism as our assurance that we have true saving faith. I think baptism by design is supposed to be a public testimony of what Christ has done for us. And to the best of our ability, when we baptize someone, we're trying to make sure they understand it. But at the end of the day, I can't see someone's heart. And so 
We only take the, the people's word for it, and, and, and sometimes they themselves, I mean, it's, it's only time will tell. And so I remember talking to someone who was asking me, it was a young child, who was asking me if they said, do you think I'm a Christian? And I said, my answer was, well, time will tell. I think for sure that you're, you're, uh, you have belief from everything that I can see. And so I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I, I, I don't have any reason to believe you're not a Christian. But I'm going to tell you this is that our discipleship, that means we're following Jesus Christ, that is only measured over time. And so that's something that, that, that we just have to keep in mind. So if we're baptized, that's a wonderful thing. But that is in of itself something that proves that we have true saving faith. But again, I, I, I know I'm walking a fine line here. I, I know I am. And I'm trying to be very careful, but I'm looking at the text here and I see what Simon did is he was baptized. But it, we have every indication to think that, that when, the way Peter responds to him so sharply and the way that he doesn't take Peter's advice in the end shows that he didn't truly understand it. And the rebuke that Peter gives to him is very pointed to basically saying, if it's even possible that your sins can be forgiven, this it wasn't saying something of, hey, you know, I know you just made a, a, a small error here. You made a wrong chess move here. No, no, no. He's saying, this is a fatal error you have made here. And the way Simon responded doesn't give me a whole lot of hope, although I wish it were so. And so don't mistake baptism for saving faith. And so baptism is, is super important, but it is, is not saving faith. And this is one of the reasons why we tend to be a little bit slower in baptizing children. Uh, again, we don't want to withhold that from children if that's what they deserve or desire. Um, but this is the reason why we have questions. This is the reason why they meet with elders. They'll meet with me or Wayne or Rob or, or someone and, and we'll just say, hey, and we'll do the best we can to ask questions, not to try to grill them. It's not like a, a test, you know, like, you know, to, you know, can you list all the books of the Bible in order? No, 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 that's not at all. It's we're trying to understand understand, does this child, does this person, do they understand true saving faith? And, and again, we can't see someone's heart, but we can only ask questions. So please, if I'm speaking to someone here where you think, well, yeah, I'm a Christian because I was baptized, if that's the first thing that comes in your mind, you might want to just stop and think about that some more. You might want to just stop and say, okay, well, really, because anyone can go up there and, and, and get wet, Okay. And I'm not trying to minimize or downplay or make light of baptism. But it's the, I tell you, I've been part of, of church my entire life. And I have uh, seen so many people who have said, you know, when I said I was a Christian, I really wasn't a Christian. I was just trying to make people happy around me. And I got baptized for the same reason because I just wanted people to be happy. And, and I wanted them to, to praise me. And, and I thought it was the right thing to do, but I didn't understand any of it. And so I got baptized and... So, Jeremy, what should I do now? And uh, those, are, those are conversations that I have with people. So I'm just saying, please, please make sure that you're not looking at only as baptism as your proof of saving faith. I need to move on. Uh, don't, please don't make mistake attachment to Christians for saving faith. Now, you notice it, it says in verse 13, Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And so, I mean, it wasn't even like he, you know, he let Philip go. Was, uh, he says, man, I want to be with this guy. And so he's walking with them, and he's walking around the town with them. He's seeing Philip do this stuff, and he probably was there when James and, and, and uh, excuse me, John and Peter come to town and, and hears about this, and they made that 40-mile journey just to go see what was happening in, in the city of Samaria. And, and, you know, man, Simon's there. Simon's there, and he's, he's, he's with him. He attached himself with other or with believers, with, with Christians. 
Of course, you know, the obvious parallel today is going to church, right? Being part of a church is so important, and, and I, I encourage everyone to be part of a church. And so this is, again, one of the reasons why this message is so hard for me to preach, because every point I make it, I feel like I got I to gotta couch it. I feel like I got I to gotta say what I'm not saying in this, because church is important. But honestly, if, if that's why you think that you're a Christian is because you're on a membership list of a church, or you visit, or you attend, or you watch our services online, then I... Please don't make that mistake. There's a lot of people that are in church. There's a lot of people that go to church that don't understand the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And they don't understand that they don't really have true saving faith. And so, I, again, this is one of the most difficult messages to preach because it's the most difficult and pastoral concerns I wrestle with on a weekly basis. But please, please don't look at involvement of a church as the proof of your salvation. See, Simon, he had said that, hey, I'm with Christians. I, I, I'm with them. I, I, I'm with, with Philip. It doesn't rub off on you that way. Because your parents are Christians doesn't mean you're a Christian. Because you have family members that pray for you on a regular basis doesn't mean that you have saving faith. So you can't get to heaven based on what someone else has done for you unless that other person is Jesus Christ. You can't get to heaven because your parents love you so much and, and want you and drag you to church every Sunday. That's not going to be what, what helps. You see, because this is a personal relationship. This is a personal uh, deal that God has with each and every person here, and it's not about attaching yourself to the people that will give you saving faith. Now, let me tell you, it's important. I think our faith is strengthened. I think we're called to encourage one another. We're called to build each other up in the faith, and we do that by gathering together, and we do that by being together. So it's incredibly important, but it is not what saves us. And we need to make sure that we remember that. Don't make that mistake that Simon made. I have two more. Please don't make the emotion. Don't mistake emotion for saving faith. Did you see this? He says, and, and, and he saw great signs and miracles before. He was amazed. I mean, he was moved. I love the parallel here that Luke gives us in, in this text because it says that he was the one doing the amazing, right? He was amazing to everyone else. I mean, Luke was very careful to record that for us so that this was something that was going on. This wasn't just like a, you know, he had a one-hit wonder here. This was something where he was just constantly amazing people in the city. But then what happens is the gospel amazes him. He sees the power of the gospel, and he sees this, and, and he is truly amazed, and he has moved in his heart. This wasn't something that he just said, okay, fine, you know, I guess it's true, and I'll believe it. No, this was something that he was absolutely astonished by, and he was taken by. In fact, it, we see his amazement of it so much that he's willing to pay for it. He's willing to give his money for it. But just because we're moved emotionally, from time to time doesn't mean that we have true saving faith. Am I downplaying emotion? Not at all. God designed us to be emotional. I mean, you guys know me. You guys know me, right? I mean, if I'm downplaying emotions, then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a wreck, right? Okay? I mean, you, you know me. But I can't look at my emotions when I'm singing a song. There's many times I'm standing there and tears are going down my, my cheeks you guys know I put my hands in the air and I'm waving and things like that. Some of you are probably saying, man, I wish that guy would stop doing that. But I, I just can't help it. I just can't help lift my hands to the Lord because, you know, David says to do it, Psalm says to do that. And it's emotional for me. I love hearing our musicians play these songs and sing these songs. They do such a wonderful job and, and I'm so grateful for it and, and the songs that are selected carefully each week and it ministers to my soul and 
I'll sit in my study over there during the week, and 90% of the time, if you walk in my office, 90% of the time, I've got headphones on in my ears, and I'm listening to some type of song, usually the same one over and over again. I'm weird that way, I know. But uh, I'm moved to tears at times. That's good. And I hope that you have those experiences as well. But please, if I ever look at that as proof that I'm a Christian, then I've made a huge mistake. Music is powerful. It can, it can mess with our emotions. and that, I'm not saying that's wrong. But I'm just saying we can't look at that as our proof of saving faith. You see, Simon here, his emotions, I mean, he, they were tapped into they were tapped, and he was ready. He was ready to, to just, just express his amazement. I mean, it's so much like I said, like, as I said just a minute ago, he was willing to give his money for it. If you're willing to pay for something, you are attached to it. And so here he was attached to this, and yet the indication is that he truly didn't understand what it meant to be a Christian. And so I just say, please, let's not mistake that, uh, not mistake emotion for saving faith. The last one. Please don't mistake fear of punishment for saving faith. This is a hard one. I, they've all been hard, I, I, I admit. But here, this is one of the reasons where as I was cheering for Simon earlier in my study. In fact, I, I got to tell you, I had one sermon written. And a few days ago, I had to scrap it and rewrite this whole thing. Because I was, I was cheering for Simon, and I was writing my sermon like, okay, Simon's going to be a Christian. He's, in the, he's just backslidden a little bit and all this stuff and everything. And then I, I went back to the book, and then I, I started reading again, and I had some doubts, and I started studying again, started pulling some commentaries down again, started looking through 2,000 years of church history, and I realized if I hold this position, there's me and everybody else, okay? Well, I don't, I don't have that confidence in my, in my own intellect. And I looked back at the text, and I was convinced. I was convinced that I was wrong. And I had to go back and look at this text again, and I had to say, no, as much as I, I want Simon to be a Christian, I, I don't think he is. I hope he is, but I don't think he is. Because I think well, what really, truly motivated him here in the end was that he just didn't want to get punished. And I don't know that that's enough. I think the Scriptures are very clear that a relationship with Jesus Christ saving faith is much more than that. Now, is it part of it, not wanting to be punished? Yeah, absolutely, that's part of it. And again, I'm not saying that these things, the baptism, the attachment to the believers, the, the, uh, the belief and the emotions, and this, I'm not saying that none of these, that they don't have any role in our saving faith. I'm saying that they can't be mistaken for saving faith. Look here in the text again. He says, Peter says, repent, verse 22, therefore this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. I think that's insightful. Here we have Peter saying that the intention of his heart has been manifest, that, Peter, that, that Simon's heart has been revealed, that he was more concerned about, about the amazement, about the signs, about the wonder. He was more amazed at, at that, and he was more concerned about that than actually following Jesus Christ. And this is why he says, pray, if possible, this intention of your heart may be forgiven you. And he says, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. That is that language that, is, that describes someone who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
that's in the bond of iniquity. Actually, when we understand the gospel, we are set free from the bond of iniquity. This is Romans chapter 6. And so, so the fact that Peter, very insightfully by the power of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, listen, you are in the bond of iniquity still here. You, you said you believed. You were baptized. We did the best we could. Philip did the best he could to, to make sure you understood. And, and, and you did all these things. But boy, by the way you are acting here and the way that you are saying, I see here that you are still in snared by sin, and, and you are captive to this. And that is the, the antithesis of what the gospel does. The gospel, according to Romans, sets us free from sin. And so this is why I think Simon, at this point at least, maybe later on, maybe later on he repented. Church history doesn't give us much hope there, but again, we don't know. Maybe later on he did repent, but at least in this moment, I don't think he understood. And the reason why is because look what Peter tells him to do. Peter says, you pray, you repent, and you pray to the Lord. You do this. He says, you do this. And how does Simon respond in verse 24? Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. So he was scared in this moment. He was scared because he knew the power the apostles had. And so he was scared, but he still didn't understand the gospel. How do I know that? Because he says, you have to pray for me. The gospel is about giving us access directly to God. It's about that we don't need a mediator. We don't need someone to pray on our behalf. The gospel says that you can come to Christ. You can repent of your sins. You can have that fellowship with God. You can have that relationship with him. That's what the gospel does. It doesn't say sit over in the corner and someone else will try to do this for you unless that person is Jesus Christ. And so the fact that he says, you pray for me, you do this, it shows that he didn't truly understand what the gospel was supposed to do for him and that what it was supposed to mean for him is it was to set him free from this, not enslave him into sin. And so what motivated him in this last statement was that he just didn't want to be punished. He wanted the fire insurance. And again, I think that's part of the saving message. I mean, no one wants to be eternally damned like the Bible describes. But is that enough? Is that enough to say, okay, I just don't want to go to hell, so therefore I'm a Christian? Okay, so I'll believe that God exists. Is that true? No. The scriptures are very clear that that is not enough. So it's important to realize that these mistakes do not come from a cat and mouse game designed by God to mess with us. Rather, where these mistakes come from, they come from humanity's propensity to complicate God's plan and to look to our works for assurance instead of Jesus' work. And so this is what I'm trying to get us to understand is that, well, I want you to believe in God. I want you to be baptized. I want you to be attached to other believers. I want you to have emotional experiences. I want you to fear the punishment that comes if we deny God. I want all those to be true of you. Those by themselves do not mean that you are a Christian and don't mean that I'm a Christian. So we can't make those mistakes. So... Am I making too much out of this one text, though? I said earlier, systematic theology says, uh, you know, we can't make too much out of just one text of Scripture. We need to look all over Scripture. Let me just, I don't think I'm making too much out of this one text because Luke's inclusion of Simon's story as a warning is in step with warnings from other places in Scripture. And as I already told you, I think it's indicative of the parable of the soils. But the author of Hebrews, we have Paul, James, and Jesus himself all show us that what I'm communicating here is true, that we can think that we are Christians and we're really not. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. He says, don't drift away. Don't move away. 
Chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, the author, who we don't know who wrote Hebrews, he said this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Did you notice what the author there had said? He says, take care, brothers. So he's talking to people who would claim to be Christians. He says, take care of this, lest any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, some of you are saying, no, are you saying, Jeremy, you can lose your salvation? I'm saying, That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that like what uh, later on, I believe it's John. It is John. In one of his letters, he said, they no longer walked with us because they never were of us. And so that's what truly happens is that it just shows that over time that they never truly were converted. And so this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, listen, brothers, you're calling yourself brothers, but just make sure that the hardness of your heart doesn't lead you away from denying the truth. And we have people that have spent years in church and years attached to other believers and had the emotional experiences and were baptized and said that they believed things and, and all these things and feared the punishment uh, of hell, but yet they move away because they didn't truly have saving faith. Chapter 10 of Hebrews For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So. The point is, is that Hebrews says that we need to be very cautious here. It's not just Hebrews. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he said this. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Did you catch that? Paul himself says, unless you believed in vain. He's saying it's possible to believe what he had said, but yet it'd be worthless, and yet it'd not be effective because it was misplaced, and the object wasn't Jesus and what he did on the cross and that transforming work, but it's rather on doctrinal statements and theological facts. Second Corinthians chapter 13, this is why Paul says, examine yourselves. Again, he's writing to a church, okay? This is a message to a church. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? He says, Christians, if, if Paul were standing here, he would say, Memorial Baptist Church, examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. And this is a message that's hard for pastors to preach because it seems like that we're just trying to get everyone to doubt their salvation and we're saying that there's no assurance of salvation. Again, that's not what we're saying. But what I am saying is I'm saying we need to be very cautious and we need to approach eternity with soberly and we need to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, is that truly what is changing me or am I hoping in something else? James chapter 2 verse 20 and 26. James says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So he says, if you don't have a life that's backing this up, your faith is useless, and you truly don't have faith. Jesus, Luke nine sixty two. no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. But then the most sobering text in all Scripture to me is this. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus closes by saying this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now again, this isn't Jesus trying to play cat and mouse. This isn't Jesus like dangling a carrot in front of us. What he's saying is he's saying there's going to be a lot of people that will say, I did things in the name of God. I said I believe things for all the wrong reasons. Maybe it was because you wanted to make family members happy. Maybe it was because you were a pastor of a church and you knew you'd lose your job. You know, all these things. None of us are above this. Maybe you have a position in the church. Maybe it's because you don't want people to think wrong of you. Maybe it's because, man, you have been known as a Christian your entire life and, and you just gotta, you gotta stay on that path. But it's not, it's because it's almost like a, it's hereditary. It's almost because your parents were Christians or you were raised this way. And it's not because the gospel has changed us. And so Jesus says very soberly, many will say, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? He says, I, I didn't know you because we didn't have this relationship. So, this is a depressing message in so many ways. You're welcome. So, is it even possible then to be certain of saving faith? Am I, am I, am I constructing this up to say, okay, so you just really can't know. So in the end, I mean, just roll the dice and hopefully you're there. You know, hopefully you're there. No. It, because it goes against what Paul, I mean, what Luke wrote. Remember the purpose of Luke and Acts, remember was what? He was writing to Theophilus so that he would have What? Certainty, remember? Okay, so if we have this here in this text, and that's the purpose that he's given so we have certainty, he's not setting this up so then we can just walk out of the service thing and go, man, I, man, I don't know. I don't know. I hope so. No, we can have certainty. Here's the key. Repentance. Repentance is the key to assurance of saving faith. This goes back to what Peter told Simon to do. He says, Repent. It means to turn, to change, to acknowledge our guilt, to, to understand our position, and to look to Jesus and say, okay, I am turning. See, see uh, repentance has two things. One, we turn from something, but we always turn to something. So if I turn away from this wall here, which is what, the north wall? If I, if I, if I turn away from the north wall here and I turn this way, I have turned from north and I've gone to south, right? Okay, that's what repentance means. We turn from our sin and we turn to Christ. So this is the key here, that our hope is in, is, is in our, 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 our saving faith of Jesus Christ here. This is what Simon seems to be lacking in this text, and this is what we're continually called throughout the New Testament is repentance where we run to Christ, where we acknowledge our guilt before God, where we ask God to forgive us, where we trust in his forgiveness. We don't, we don't say to someone else, hey, can you do this for me? We say, no, I need to go to God. I need to ask you to forgive me of my sins. Assurance of salvation should not come only from a decision we made or an action we took or an emotion we felt. Assurance of salvation comes from a, a life that Jesus is changing. And we know that Jesus is changing us because we're repenting. And, we, and, and it's not just one thing. It's not just one time. We, we have a life of repentance. In fact, in some countries, uh, a Christians, a name for Christians is repenter because it's a life of repentance. It's not like, oh, woe is us, and I'm just a worm, I'm terrible. That's not what he's talking about. It's just understanding our sin and asking God to forgive us and asking God to help us to grow past it. I mentioned the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646. I'm going to share a couple quotes with you because they have a great statement on the um, 
a repentance. In fact, I meant to print this, uh, the entire statement off and have it for you, but if you want, I can email it to you, but, or you can just Google Westminster Confession of Faith. It says this, I love this, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins, particularly. He says, don't just say that, you know, you have this general, yeah, I, I know I'm a sinner, I, no one's perfect, yeah, I know I do bad things. He said, that's not true repentance. True repentance isn't just saying, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. Well, everyone knows that. No, true repentance is that you're, you, you say, okay, this is why I'm wrong, and this is why it's a violation against God's will. This is why it, 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 I need forgiveness. It's every duty, man, every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. So the question is, does your sin bother you? Whether people know about it or not, this is a sign whether or not the Spirit of God is, is, is in your life and acting in your life. If when you sin, you're bothered by it and you want to ask God to forgive you whether or not people know about it. Are you actively trying to follow Christ? Are you using the tools God gave us? Prayer, Bible, fellowship of believers, Lord's Supper, singing. Are, are, we, are you using these things in your effort to follow Christ? And repentance is not a work. Timothy calls it a gift, so I'm not advocating work salvation here. And the Westminster um, uh, speaks to that. Although repentance be not rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is an act of God's free grace in Christ, so the pardon is God's act of free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. So again, they anticipate this, the, the, the document, this theological document, anticipates the thing, well, is repentance a work? Are we trusting in repentance for? Uh, say, no, he's saying that this is the channel of which we come to God. God says, repent and I will receive. Ask forgiveness and it will be yours. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be open to you. This is what the scripture says. It's a relationship. So do you pray for repentance? Let me encourage you to pray for repentance. I, I ask God, I say, God, give me a repentant heart. God, please, may sin bother me. I ask God, I, I say, God, can you help me to see sin the way you see it? Because I see sin, and man, it looks good. That's why I do it, right? Okay? I remember when I was a youth pastor, I, I started a lesson to the teens one time. I was like, hey, guys, I'm going to tell you something. Sin is really fun. Yeah, they're like, man, we didn't expect that coming from a youth pastor. I said, but the, the consequences are terrible, right? If it was fun, if it wasn't fun, why would we do it, right? And so the point is, is that I ask God to change my thinking about these things. I ask God to change the way I view stuff. Maybe some of you would just need to say, hey, the idols that are in our lives of sports and pornography and money and, and all these type of things, ask God to change how we see these things. Our responsibilities, our identity, all that. Do you pray for repentance? One last quote from the Westminster. As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation on those who truly repent. He says the smallest of sins will damn our souls, but the greatest of sins will be forgiven when we repent. I find great hope in that. And so, as I bring this to a close, this is the importance of the Lord's Supper. That's what we're going to have, the Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper says to examine ourselves, to see if you're in the faith. Uh, well, that's what Paul says in Corinthians. The Lord's Supper, when Paul is writing to Corinthians, he says, let a man examine himself. And this is in 1 Corinthians 11. So that, that way, that they're, they're, they're taking the Lord's Supper in, in a meaningful way. 
And one of the things, one of the reasons why the Lord's Supper is so important is that, and I think that we need to have, we must have a regular routine observance of the Lord's Supper is because of what it communicates. It's an opportunity for us to examine whether or not we truly still believe the things that we say we believe. It's an opportunity for us to kind of do a gut check. It's an opportunity for us to think, okay, do I really believe that Jesus died on the cross? Do I really believe, and I put several of these things up there, I'm not going in order. Do I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do I really believe that I have forgiveness of sins? Do I really believe that Jesus is coming back? Do I really believe that Jesus is worth it? Do I really believe all these things? That's what the Lord's Supper gives us an opportunity to do. Examine yourselves. And so in a minute here, we're going to have the opportunity to come up to the table. And what Jesus has done for us, he's given us an opportunity to publicly profess this again. Again, this is part of the assurance process. It's not because by eating or drinking we get assurance, but it's out of assurance that we eat and drink together. It's out of assurance of saying, you know what? I'm not perfect. And you know what? I have sinned gravely this week. And you know what? This has been terrible in so many ways. But I know what Jesus says, that if I ask for forgiveness, that he will forgive me. So in this moment, I'm repenting and asking God to forgive me of my sins. Then the table's yours. You come up and you, you proclaim that and say, this is what I believe. And so it's an opportunity for us to publicly testify of what Christ has done for us and the assurance of salvation that is possible. And so these are questions that I just put up there. That these are some of the questions that roll around in my head that I, I hope that you think through when we have the Lord's Supper. So in a minute here, what we're going to do is we're going to transition to the table. And uh, what will happen is, is uh, I'll go down there and uh, uh, we'll break up the bread. I'll put the gloves on and hand sanitizer, all that stuff, of course. Put my mask back on. And uh, we'll, we'll break the bread up there. Uh, musicians will come up, and they're going to lead us in some singing. What I hope that you do is, is because they're going to be primarily the ones singing as you're coming up to the table, is I hope that you, you think about these questions. And think about, okay, is this an opportunity for me to say this is truly what I believe? I'm not trusting in a baptism. I'm not trusting in anything else, although those are important things. I'm trusting in the fact that Jesus is changing my life, and I want him to change my life. And I want to follow him. That's what I'm trusting in. Oh, I want you to celebrate at the table. I want you to celebrate the table today. So in a minute, you know, we've got these X's over here to kind of keep them spaced out as they walk up here. Wayne's going to help me over here, and he'll bring, put a cup of juice on the table. You'll walk by. I'll put a piece of bread on the table. And if, if you want to, you affirm these things, and this is, you say, I'm not perfect, but I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm trusting not in anything. I'm not trusting in what Simon trusted. I'm trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. Man, you just grab that piece of bread and you go back to your seat and we'll eat and drink together. Um, uh, If you have a hard time coming up to the table, uh, I'm going to ask Barb if you would help me with that. Uh, We've got a little tray. uh, He's going to go back and serve the sound people working in the sound booth anyway. For those of you in the gym, you can, in a minute when I pray, if you want to come up and join us, I know there's just a few of you there and and I, I think we've got plenty of room for you to join us here. And uh, uh, so when I pray, you can make your way up there for those of you in the gym. And so let me just, let me just say that uh, uh, we'll start, you know, uh, what, what section should we start with? Uh, uh, we'll start with this section over here. So JP will lead the way. You'll lead the charge, okay? So uh, you come up, and once this section kind of got up, then the middle section can come in, then this last section can come through, and then we'll eat and drink together. But this is why the Lord's Supper is so important. It gives us the opportunity to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Because assurance is possible. If you walk away thinking, I don't know if assurance is possible, boy, I failed in this sermon. I've just tried to point out what shouldn't be your sources of assurance. 
and remind us what should be our source of assurance. And the fact that it's written to churches means that we all need to hear this message. Let me pray, and then we'll worship at the table. Father, I pray that you would receive the uh, uh, glory of us worshiping you in this way. I pray that we would be people who are... uh, that we have assurance. And Father, if there's someone here today right now in their soul, they're saying, man, I, I don't know. I've, what is he talking about there? Father, I pray you give them courage to ask questions and we don't want to embarrass people. We don't want to point people out. We want to come alongside people because every one of us at some point, we're at a place where we didn't know the answers to these questions either. And so, Father, I pray you give boldness and courage to people that just uh, ask questions so that we can help them uh, see from God's word. And Father, if, if you're just doing a work in someone's heart right now uh, that say, well, I, I've been trusting in the wrong thing and I, need to, I just need to ask Jesus to save me and trust in that alone. Father, I pray you, you'd work that faith in their heart right now and I pray that I'd have the joy of talking with them afterwards about it. And Father, I, I pray that we would look to nothing else than what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross because if we think about it, it really cheapens the work of Christ on the cross if we look to anything else for our assurance. So now as we have the opportunity to publicly testify of our assurance in you, I pray that we would do so not never out of pride, only out of humble worship and adoration. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.